Episode 11, Caught and Escaped. What you're about to hear are a series of events that occurred during my time as a state police officer. Based on true and factual accounts, some details were changed due to operational security and confidentiality reasons, but not in a way to affect the veracity of this story. Her right leg had separated from her body, and I could see where it had spun away on the bitumen, leaving swirling blood marks on the road. Someone had retrieved the detached leg and returned it back next to her, but it was severely damaged. Frantically screaming, her friends desperately tried to comfort and calm her while attempting to stem the bleeding from her torso. And then she passed out. In a previous episode, I touched on the difficulties of attending scenes where violence or carnage has occurred. Whether it's an accident scene or dealing with a horrific crime, it can be difficult on a mental and a visual level. Your actions and efforts are crucial, particularly not only during the incident, but afterwards as you manage the scene and the investigation begins. This episode is comprised of situations I attended where not only was the scene horrific, each of these were avoidable and in some cases the reasoning and causation behind them callous and deliberate. I successfully investigated all of them, but one, the one that got away. An old dark green Dodge pickup hurtled its way down a single lane country road the eyes of its driver struggling to stay open. With no street lights and in the dead of night, negotiating a bend at speed after ingesting copious quantities of drugs mixed with alcohol makes for a toxic, dangerous and unforgiving mix. I could easily see where the Dodge had left the road and continued to drive in a straight line down a small grass embankment, clearly at speed and without any signs of braking. An old pickup like this had no ABS, so had he been sober and conscious of what was transpiring, there would have been evidence of an evasive or corrective action. The Dodge travelled quickly along the grass, possibly at around 50 miles or 90 kilometres per hour, past the right-hand bend, and clipped the left side of the only tree within a 500 metre radius. The impact caused it to roll two and a half times before it finally came to rest on its roof. The first person at the scene was Pete Devlin, who ironically or weirdly was one of the local search and rescue volunteers. The Green Dodge had passed him at great speed a couple of kilometres earlier, and while he didn't witness the actual collision, it appeared to have occurred only a minute or so prior to him arriving. He had called the accident in, and as I was close by, I responded and arrived within four minutes of his call. The scene was reasonably contained with the debris spread in a straight line after the tree, but apart from evidentiary considerations, my immediate concern was for the occupants. I ran down to the Dodge where I could see Pete was half in, half out of the driver's side of the cabin, so I went to the opposite side and stuck my head in. My initial observation was the strong smell of alcohol and I was relieved to see there was only one male occupant inside. He was a big boy, possibly 130 kilos or 260-270 pounds. He appeared to be in a semi-conscious state and was hanging upside down, suspended by the seatbelt. 
I initially thought he had been lucky to remain in the vehicle, not to have been ejected during the rollover, but on closer inspection, he had sustained some nasty injuries and he was in a fairly bad way. It appeared as if he must have had his arm resting out of the window when it had impacted the tree. Half of his elbow was gone, the other half smashed and forced inward. The muscles of his upper arm hung raggedly from the bone, and my immediate thought was what remained would potentially have to be amputated. Pete pointed upwards into the upside-down wheel well near the brake pedal and told me the male's right ankle appeared to be crushed and captured within the twisted metal. I pushed myself further inside and shone my torch on his leg when right next to me and near my ear, he let out a strangely slow yet long breath. I shone the light on his bearded face. A line of blood began to pour from his partially open mouth, down his forehead, and dripped onto the roof of the upturned car. Has he got a pulse? I asked Pete. He did when I first got here, was the reply, as Pete reached up again and felt his neck. Not now, though, he added. We need to get him out, and now, said Pete, stating the obvious. Clearly, I couldn't have agreed more, but how was the question? He was obviously a heavy guy without a pulse hanging upside down with his full weight suspended by the seatbelt, and his ankle was potentially trapped within the twisted metal. It was only the two of us. We've got no extraction equipment, and search and rescue in an ambulance would be an easy 20-plus minutes away. It was obvious his breathing was now compromised, so he needed to be out now. Pete was the expert with extractions, so I was happy to be guided by him, and thankfully he didn't hesitate. The quickly prepared plan was to release him from the seatbelt and deal with his ankle when we could access it. Pete pulled a safety knot from his belt and indicated he would cut the belt once we had him supported. I put my right hand on the male's shoulder and rested my elbow on the roof of the upturned car, as did Pete on the other side, so that we could prop him up. He counted down from three and then cut the seatbelt. But it wasn't a good plan. The driver was simply too heavy and both of our arms collapsed under his weight. His head partly folded as his body weight came downwards and it felt like my own arm snapped under the weight. Pull him out your side, Pete yelled as he reached upwards into the car and pulled at his trapped ankle. Surprisingly, the ankle came away, but I struggled to drag the weight in the tight confines of the cabin. I'll drag him out by his legs, Pete suggested, as he was standing outside of the car. You support his head from hitting the roof and keep his neck straight. I put a hand on each side and partly under his head so my hands would drag along the vinyl lining of the roof. On my knees, I crawled along the roof while Pete stood outside and pulled him out. Finally out of the car, I gently rested his head on the grass as Pete checked for a pulse again. I shone the torch downwards because I noticed a bloody mess under his head. It would appear that the back of his head had obviously taken some major impact as it had cracked open. It was brain matter on the ground and under the torchlight I could see it was now on my hands as well. In the rush I'd forgotten to put my gloves on. Pete and I stood up and took a moment. That's Joe Hickman, said Pete. Who? Joe Hickman, he repeated. He's very well known within our community as the uncatchable drug dealer who takes a lot of pride in selling his gear to junior school kids. 
I was to be the lead investigator, and sure enough, Pete was right. A search of the Dodge located bags of various pills in the glove box and under the seat, along with a loaded Smith & Wesson handgun. But it was also to come to light that he was wanted by the local crime guys, as he had been involved in more serious crimes than just selling drugs to kids. The autopsy was to show his blood contained a toxic mix of drugs and alcohol, the alcohol reading over four times the legal limit. The coroner detail he had been beyond saving as he had died from a ruptured aorta and he found that Hickman's death was a result of his own actions. I later heard that there were very few people at his funeral and it was said that not one person shed a tear. Would you? Giggling, as teenage girls tend to do, particularly when they're in a group of six, they stepped off the train and they made their way down the road of the train station car park. This is a straight and long stretch of road on a slight downhill incline that runs parallel to the train line. Commuters park their cars on one side of the road, which allows for two lanes of vehicle travel. As it's early afternoon, there's no traffic within the car park, yet the girls are still doing the right thing and walking next to the rear of the cars away from the road. Bridget is on the outer edge of the group and engaged in a heavy conversation with her best friend Sandy. One of the girls notices an older gentleman with a golden retriever walking some distance behind them as she later mentions that she too had a dog of the same breed. Yet, it was only to be the older gent that notices the white Toyota sedan heading towards the group of girls as his attention was drawn to the excessive speed it was travelling at. He would later give evidence that he watched the Toyota deliberately swerve to its left towards the group and strike them, the severity of the impact throwing one of them violently into the air. Bridget only remembers being on the train and nothing thereafter. She doesn't remember being struck by the Toyota and being tossed like a rag doll 12 metres away from her girlfriends, nor does she remember knowing her right leg had been torn from her body. It was her best friend Sandy who went and retrieved the torn off leg and placed it back next to Bridget, and it was also Sandy who tried to stem the bleeding as the bulk of the other girls struggled with what they'd witnessed. After striking Bridget, the Toyota continued on for another 200 metres where it stopped at the end of the car park. The driver stepped from the car, briefly looked back towards the group and the scene before getting back in and turning right and out of view. Importantly and critically, the older gentleman, Jeff, was to become the saver and the key witness. As a witness, he strangely remembered the first two letters of the registration of the Toyota and the last of the three digits, but he also made me aware that a number of things had flown through the air apart from Bridget and her school bag. As a saviour, he ran to the scene and he took over from the girls. No doubt his immediate actions more than likely saving Bridget's life. The paramedics were working on Bridget when I arrived at the scene and Jeff made himself known to me. What pricked my ears was what occurred after the impact. After he'd handed over to the paramedics, Jeff had noticed a middle-aged male scrounging in the grass near the end of the car park. He watched this male pick up something and when Jeff called out to him, he threw it away deeper into the bush before he quickly walked away. I went over and searched the long grass where the male had been and I found and retrieved the said item. 
It was a white-coloured side mirror, which turned out belonged to a Toyota Corolla. I was now on a path, and not unlike a dog, I now had a bone. No other evidence had been left behind, so I was to rely heavily on Jeff's recollection of the partial registration to match the side mirror. An analysis of the registration database narrowed down the number of possible combinations associated to a white Toyota sedan to 341. All of them spread throughout a state of over 800,000 square kilometres. This was going to be a mammoth task, but I knew all I needed to do was find just one, one without a left side mirror. Six weeks later, I was becoming desperate. In that time, I had contacted multiple stations throughout the state, and I'd had my fellow officers eliminate 243 of the 341 target vehicles. I'd personally attended numerous addresses and managed to eliminate a further 87, which left 11 I needed to account for. I was very much aware I had provided the offender with six weeks of time to rectify any damage to the vehicle, so I had to speed up the investigation. Another two weeks later, I had whittled it down to eight, and it was proving difficult to locate these remaining few. I'd done my homework, and when I called on the owner of number eight, I was told that he had sold it some six, seven months ago. This had become a common theme, where the car had been sold but never transferred into the new owner's name, and I found myself bouncing around from suburb to suburb, house to house. The door opened at Toyota House number 8, and he readily acknowledged he owned an old white Toyota sedan and that it was parked inside his garage. I got him to reverse it out into the sunlight, and I inspected the left side. No damage, and the left side mirror was there. But could see it had a new rubber mounting gasket with a mirror attached to the body. Mate, you are done. Or so I thought. It turns out the Toyota had had mechanical issues, and eight weeks ago he'd taken it to a mechanics, which he stated was near a train station, to have the gearbox replaced. He produced the receipt to me. Bingo. I immediately impounded the car and I had it sent to forensics who matched its body paint to that on the retrieved side mirror. I applied for a search warrant, put together a squad of 12 armed police and raided the premises of Fast Auto Mechanics, located some 380 metres from the scene of the accident. Crying like a baby, the 21-year-old son of the business owner immediately put up his hand as the driver and he tipped his father in as being complicit. It turns out he had been test driving the car after installing the new gearbox, and while he hadn't intended on striking any of the girls, he admitted to deliberately swerving towards them. He alleged that he panicked when he realised he'd actually hit Bridget, and he had raced back to the factory telling his father what had happened. His father then returned to the scene, where he tampered with the evidence by throwing it away in an attempt to cover up his son's crime. The father was then also charged. It was with a lot of pride that I attended court on the day of his sentencing, but I was to leave gutted. Bridget, now months down the track and still in a wheelchair, also attended, as did her entire family. Her victim statement was read to the court, which detailed the effect losing her leg had on a very young life. Yet the court, 
in combination with the wheeling and dealing by the two legal counsels, pitied the upbringing of the offender and ordered that he serve no period of custody. This was gut-wrenching to Bridget and I, and we all witnessed a failure of the system on that day. This set me off on a course of disillusionment with the legal system, as I was sick and tired of offenders getting off or receiving little or no penalty because of cause and effect. He had been caught, yet then escaped, which to me was a kick in the guts. However, a kick to my head was just around the corner. 68 years of age, and now in the first year of his retired life, George was travelling slowly in the left of two lanes on a typical inner suburban road. He'd just picked up his takeaway pizza for his wife and himself, and he placed it on the passenger seat next to him. As a cautious older driver, he knew the street he had to turn into was coming up, so he diverged early into the right lane and inadvertently into the path of a large, rigid truck carrying a full load. The truck braked heavily and sounded its horn, but a collision was avoided. George continued in the right lane for the next mile or so before turning on his indicator and gently applied the brakes. However, no sooner had he put his foot on the brake, he was struck from behind by that heavy and fast-moving truck. The Ford sedan driven by George was pushed across the two lanes in the opposite direction, the truck at its rear forcing it forwards. George frantically fought the steering wheel with zero effect. Now under full braking, the tyres of the Ford left one long black curving mark as it careered across the road. The truck continued to push George towards a curb where together they mounted it and headed towards a large gum tree. The Ford began to twist sideways and the front wheel took the entire force of impact at the base of the mammoth tree. With the last of its momentum, the heavy and large truck compounded the impact as it forced George and the Ford deeper into the base of that tree. The incredible amount of force transferring through the car threw George out of the driver's seat and into the passenger side where his body was stopped by the passenger door. The side glass shattered and while his body remained inside the car, his head hung outside of the door at a very unnatural angle his eyes open and looking outwards towards a children's playground. Incredibly, George remained intact and visually very little, if any, damage could be seen to his body. It was to be one of only two of hundreds of bodies that I would eventually deal with that the coroner could not determine the exact cause of death. Sure, it was a collision involving a truck that caused him to die, but strangely, it couldn't be determined what physical part of his body failed. The truck driver accepted zero blame for the cause of the collision, but the evidence told me otherwise. There was no physical evidence on the road that informed me the truck was under any form of heavy braking or any attempt of avoidance. The skid marks could only be attributed to the Ford and George's frantic braking, and when I pointed this out to him, he stated that the brakes were faulty on the truck and they had been for days, yet he had neglected to report it. I ran a reverse call check of his phone to see if it had been in use at the time, but that was cleared and the standard drug and alcohol checks returned negative. 
Even though it had taken some time for me to arrive and take control of the investigation, this had allowed the driver and his working passenger a large amount of time to get their stories together. But by this time, I was a seasoned investigator, and not only did I find slight differences in their version of events, I just knew the whole truth wasn't being told. This could only be resolved through methodically and intensively accumulating and reviewing all of the available evidence. I impounded the truck and it underwent an extensive mechanical inspection which determined the brakes did have a degree of degradation but not enough that he wouldn't have been able to stop. The truck belonged to a large and well-known company and I had their mechanical records forensically studied. The scene was extensively measured, the road drag tested to determine the friction when braking, the physics and the braking capability of the truck studied, particularly when it was under load. And all of this was collated and eventually put to him in a probing interview. By now, I was a seasoned and an experienced investigator, and this had been recognised on a number of occasions with commendations. But this incident, where I owed it to George, his family, and the sense of right and wrong, I just couldn't get it over the line. I compiled the brief of evidence and I pushed the prosecution section to authorise the charges, but they said there just wasn't enough. I knew, and I know to this day, that not one single piece of evidence indicates George was in any way at fault. Yes, he may have cut off the truck a mile or so earlier up the road, but everything pointed to the truck driver taking his vengeance out on George for his minor indiscretion. I just couldn't beat the two of them getting their heads together and no other independent witness was available. I am of the firm opinion the truck driver deliberately collided into George and in a fit of rage forced him into that tree and extinguished his life. It haunts me to this day that I couldn't deliver justice to George. The one and only saving grace I cling to is I can't help but feel had I successfully proven it and the truck driver was convicted, he probably would have only received a slap on the wrist. It would have been no different to Bridget's offender. If you're enjoying these episodes and would like to be informed when a new episode is posted, please follow and support me on my Instagram page, truecrime.ericwelsh. Thank you.